0: Hello and welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level Sunday Interview. I'm your host Tim Miller. Uh, we've got Tom Arnold today, and I gotta tell you, we you know we did some comedy and we did some funny stuff for a guy called the the Forrest Gump of the Resistance. But uh, we also, I think, um, really cover some serious topics about reaching out to MAGA world and and his relationship with Roseanne and her getting red pilled and him coming from a you know very MAGA part of the world in Iowa uh, a um, a factory town uh, what he's seen from the the folks that that grew up that grew up there and and what that tells him about how you know, maybe we can reintegrate these folks and and uh and bring some people back into the light so so we have I, I think a really nice chat with Tom Arnold including some funny uh memories from you know the 90s uh, glory days um but uh, before we get to him uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Dean Phillips. Uh, the, the Arnold interview was taped about a week and a half ago, uh, and we had to push it back because of the news in Israel. And, and so, you know, I, I think almost all of the stuff that we discuss is uh, is still very timely. Um, but uh, I, I, we've obviously had a ton of news since then. We had a live show in New Orleans since then. Thank you to everybody that came. Uh, and uh, the big thing that has happened uh, since we last got together was Dean Phillips. Uh, Congressman from Minnesota officially getting into the race against Joe Biden. So I wanted to give you a quick uh, rant about that before we get to Arnold. And uh, here's the thing I I actually am sympathetic to the idea that maybe somebody should have got into the race against Joe Biden to provide an alternative just on the merits of the fact that we, you know, somebody that's 82 years old, I I think that there's a legitimate question about whether, you know, the Democrats should have had the ability to choose amongst themselves uh, about. Uh, whether that was the direction that they wanted to go. And and I, I was particularly, I think, intrigued by that view about a year ago this time, October 2022. 20, uh, this was before the midterms. This was before uh, Joe Biden's really deft handling of multiple uh, foreign policy crises at the same time. Um, it was at a time when inflation was worse. A- and I think that, you know, back then in October, I thought maybe it would make sense for you know, probably one of the top-tier candidates maybe wouldn't get in, but, but for somebody, you know, I, I, you know, everybody knows I'm fond of Jared Polis, um, though I, I think it would make more sense for a person of color to have gotten in, maybe a Raphael Warnock. I, you know, back then, at, at coming off a big win, hypothetically, in Georgia, I, I thought maybe Warnock might be a good option. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'm not totally allergic to the idea that, given the threat faced from Trump, you know, the Democrats might have had to kind of, you know, pull, pull the emergency cord and say, hey, is there somebody else out there? Should we, you know, should, should we, uh, you know, run the traps on an alternate candidate from Joe Biden? Um, and here's the thing. A lot of stuff's happened since then. Joe Biden's had a really good year. It hasn't showed up in his poll numbers. Um, and, and I think that's a legitimate thing to be concerned about. But after a surprising midterm win, after the management of well, Ukraine was happening back then, but after the continued strong management of the Ukraine crisis, and then just this, these last few weeks, uh, the way that he's handled Israel, the, all the economic markers going the right way, inflation's still still high, of course, uh, if you look at it cumulatively, but, but everything moving in the right direction. Now here we are. We are three months away from the first votes being cast. Uh, the idea that this would be the time for an unknown, rich, right white guy to get into the race without any really distinguishing characteristics for Biden—he is—he he voted with Biden on everything, and instead, his critiques of Biden are going to be playing into uh, the rights talking points on on what's happening with the economy right now, um, based on based on his opening day launch. I, I just. There's a right time and a right place for everything. I, I have respect for my friends, uh, Bill Crystal and James Carville, and others who, who think that a primary challenge is worthwhile. Maybe it is worthwhile. Maybe if there was a Moby Dick person out there, a young black Democrat, a young black Democratic woman um, who you know gets into the race and is dynamic and 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 could offer a generational pitch, somebody that could say, "I love Joe Biden. Joe Biden's done a great job. Joe Biden's done a fantastic job, but we need to turn the page generationally and and have their argument be totally electoral and generational." Uh, again, I think it's probably too late for that, but at least that would. You know, have a chance. At least that would be something that would uh, that could plausibly lead to a better outcome for Democrats. Uh, Dean Phillips does not have a chance. Dean Phillips is not going to be the nominee. And and to bring in a former Republican hatchet man like Steve Schmidt and, and to reveal to Tim Alberta of the Atlantic in day one of your campaign that your plan is to run a rapid response effort that puts Joe Biden on the defense every day. I think is just wildly irresponsible. So uh, I'm going to have uh, more additional thoughts about about Schmidt and about this effort uh, over on YouTube here early in this week. So so make sure you're subscribed to the Bulwark YouTube page. Uh, we'll be back Wednesday, and and you know by then I don't know Dean Phillips will probably be out of the news because I think this is. Such a quixotic and possibly irrelevant effort. But if that's not true, um, we'll discuss it with Sarah and JVL on Wednesday. Uh, But as of right now, count me as a double thumbs down on the Dean Phillips effort. Um, I think that we are where we are in the uh, in the cycle. Uh, Joe Biden has had really an excellent couple of weeks, a couple of months as president. And uh, right now, I think the energy and the focus needs to be ensure, ensuring that the man that tried to end our democracy, Donald Trump, is not the president again. So that's, that's what I got for now And Dean Phillips. Uh, everybody enjoy their pre-Halloween weekend. Uh, you know, Halloween's like a month-long festival now. Uh, I loved on the Secret Podcast that, that Sarah just wants Halloween to be a holiday in our hearts year-round. Maybe, that, maybe that's something to think about. Go check out the Secret Podcast and join Bulwark Plus if you haven't. We will be back here on Wednesday. Up next, Tom Arnold. I promise you you're going to enjoy this. Uh, The the end of this podcast was really a pleasant surprise and rollicking for me. Uh, So check it out. But before we get to Tom, our friends at Acid Tongue, peace. Welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level Sunday interview. I'm your host, Tim Miller. I'm here with Tom Arnold. What a world. How are you doing, my man?
1: I'm doing well. How are you doing?
0: Well, all things considered, I'm doing pretty good. We're taping this on Monday. I have a feeling Jim Jordan's going to be the Speaker of the House tomorrow, you know, and and we've got terrorist attacks happening, so that's all not great. But other than that, I'm doing pretty darn good.
1: Yeah, you know, Jim Jordan, you know, the whole thing with the guys he coached up in Ohio State, I know a lot about wrestling. Dad Gable, who's the greatest wrestler, greatest wrestling coach of all time, is a buddy of mine for the University of Iowa. The whole yeah. thing with Jim Jordan is when you're an assistant coach with wrestlers, no athletes are closer than wrestlers just by the nature of all the contact. And they are intimate with each other. And the assistant coach is like a big brother. That's who Jim Jordan was to the Ohio State wrestling team. He's the big brother. He helps with everything. So... Let's say, and of course he knew what was going on, he'd heard the stuff about the doctor that was sexually assaulting people, but let's say he did it, and then those young men came forward and were honest about it. There's 157. Why didn't he go at that time? Whoa, those are my guys, man. Right. I'm going to throw the full weight of whatever it is I do on this and support my guys, because that's what you do. But no, it's fine.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the thing with this guy, is that Jim Jordan, he's always been like this. He's always been self-important. And he saw this opening to be a MAGA firebrand. And he has run with it. And all my people, the guys that were supposed to be the normal, moderate Republicans, they've all folded. They're all just a bunch of pussies. Like they they all just fold like cheap suits.
1: Anyway. Well, let me say one more thing about Jim Jordan. Yeah. What you learned in wrestling is if you lose, you have to shake hands with the winner. You do that in front of everybody. Good point. You're good at defeat. You know how to lose. You say, and then I'll get you next time. That's what you do. So everything that he believed in at one time is out the window for Donald Trump, which is crazy. But uh, that's, that's who he is now.
0: Not really. He might get the portrait out of it. It's really something. It's the tale of our time. Okay. I didn't mean to start with Jim Jordan, but you know, you asked me how I was doing and and, uh, Jim Jordan is hovering over my life. But the Iowa connection that you brought up, it does get to your origin story. You're an Iowa guy by brand and all that. And I was refreshing myself on your backstory. Man, your childhood in Iowa is kind of insane right? Like your mother uh-huh. like leaves for a while and then comes uh-huh. back and your sister's a meth dealer. And I'm just, I'm just like, talk to us, just give us a little bit. Obviously yeah. the whole yeah. podcast can't be, you know, a year by year rundown of your childhood, but like, and uh, you know, about what that was like and how that influenced your worldview.
1: Well, first of all, I'm born in Tub, Iowa, which is in Wapello County, Iowa. And that used to be the most democratic county in America. Maria Shriver said when they were coming through campaigning for Ted or whoever. They always went to a Etubo, Iowa. And that's what it was at the time. My sister, who's also famous because there's a documentary series about her called The Queen of Meth, because she was the biggest drug dealer in America at one time. And people ask me, were you embarrassed that your sister was a drug dealer? And I say, not when I was doing drugs, I wasn't, because it was, it was actually very handy. But I'm from a meatpacking plant town, my grandfather worked at the meat packing plant for 50 years. My dad worked there. My uncle worked there. And out of high school, I worked there on the kill floor of a meat packing plant. And people say, how do I get a job I don't get fired from? Get the worst job possible. And that was one of them. I worked at Hormel. And, you know, I needed to save money to go to college. I wanted to be at the University of Iowa because I knew once I got there, anything was possible. I could be a stand-up comedian I dreamed of. I just knew I had to get out of this and get there, because there, where I lived, everybody looked the same. Everybody did the same stuff. But at Iowa, at the university, there was people from other places and around the world, and so I worked very hard to get there. My meatpacking plant closed down. There's a famous documentary called American Dream that Barbara Koppel directed about the Hormel meatpacking plant mm-hmm. strike. And that was my plant, where the people in Austin, Minnesota, the home of Hormel, they went on strike, so we, their brothers, went on strike to support them. But this went on for a year and a half, and they got their jobs back, and then they fired all of us. And they had been off so long, they couldn't go back out. And so they fired everybody, Hormel did, and just changed the name on the outside of the building to XL. Inside the building, they made exactly the same products, security one abs, spam, everything they ever made, but they changed the name, so they broke the union and hired... People at half the wages. And that was very devastating in my hometown. It made a right for drugs. You know, <clears throat> my sister until she was fourteen, she was the smartest kid in school. She was a great athlete, but at fourteen, she made it. My mom. We were raised by my dad. When my dad was twenty-two, I was four. My sister was three. My brother was one. And our mom would take it off. She's. She would say things like, "I'm not maternal. I'll never say I love you." You know, I'll tap you on the knee once in a while. I knew she wasn't a mom. My sister is a year younger. She was her hero. And my dad made the unfortunate mistake of, you know, my mom would show up at the house drunk. She did drugs, fall into the Christmas tree. And my dad would just laugh because I think he thought he was taking the high road. So I knew it wasn't okay. But my sister was like, that's my hero. So when my sister turned 14, she moved in with my mom. And this happened very quickly. My sister had met a 22-year-old pedophile at Skateland oh, God. and was dating him. My mom found out and said, well, you got three choices. Break up with him, which 14-year-old is not going to do. I'm going to have him arrested, or I'm going to drive you guys to Missouri right now and get married. And that's what my mom did. One day, my sister was there. The next day, she wasn't. She was living with Bob. And, I mean, her life went off the rails at that point. You know, he beat her up. He did all these things. They broke up but you can't go back to eighth grade. You've lived with somebody. You've had this life here and been married. You can't go back and just pick up where you left off at the beginning of eighth grade. So she had to figure out stuff to do. She did a lot of stuff. She had to sell herself. She did some drugs. She, my mom was the first person all of us ever did drugs with. You know, <laughs> and said, yeah. So my sister, though, they were running buddies, her and my mom. She saw people selling drugs. She asked him about it. And she decided, yeah, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it big time, like professionally. I'm going to make this a real career, and I'm going to do it as well as I can. Her next husband was the head of a motorcycle club called the Grim Reapers, or as I call them, the Grimy Rapers. (laughs) And it's funny because I thought that he was the bad influence. He was this really tough dude. Anyway, so they ran from the East Coast to the West Coast, and Iowa has Interstate 80 there. Yeah, yeah. So they are running stuff out and dealing with the Mexican Mafia and stuff and back and forth. And once in a while, one of the guys get busted. So my sister decided, why use the Mexican Mafia? Why don't we build an underground lab here on a 160-acre farm in tumble, Iowa? I'll get a chemist from Purdue University, underground, we'll have all the bikers guarded. We'll hire the police to work there, which is what she did, our local police. And our seventh stepdad was the chief of police, Delmer.
0: Seventh? Was that seventh? Was that the word there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And he hated me. He loved my sister, though, but weirdly, it was a lot. But that's what she did. And it became this huge operation. And then she started buying her friends, you know, like the John Gotti thing. She would buy people houses in our town. So there was nobody that was going to snitch on her. She had a new Jaguar. Nobody in a tub, of Iowa. Drives a Jaguar. She had a new one, and the license plate said dealer. I mean, that's how she rolled around, and it just very cocky. But I knew this is just ends badly. And then eventually you see this thing, the DEA agent is pretty funny, that did the whole giant raid because they couldn't tell the local police right? because they were right. working there. So big raid, got her in prison. They wanted to put her in prison for life. I helped her the first time, and pleaded with the judge, got her great lawyer, Ron Bespesher, out of Minneapolis, and got her out. 10 years. She had a gun, so she had to do 10 years. Got her job at the Meat Packet Plant, not Hormel, but whatever it was called then. Because I said, well, that's the best job in Etubwa. You know, you'll maybe get some benefits, whatever. And she worked there about two months. And then I got a call. She's not working here anymore. I was like, oh boy, she's drinking, which yeah. you're not supposed to do if you're a probation. And then I got a call from the DA guy. She's dealing again. And he said, we won't arrest her if she stops right now. So I fly into Ottumwa, get my six brothers and sisters. I'm the oldest. I go, we're going to pose for a picture with dad. So we go down to Durie Studios, our little photo place there in at Ottumwa. We do the picture. And then on the way out, I say, Lori, they know you're dealing. I talked to the DA guy and the sheriff. and But if you stop right now, They're not going to arrest you. And she's like, mind your own fucking business. And then, bam, that was it. They arrested her the next week, 10 more years. And I got them to put her in the Martha Stewart prison the first time in West Virginia. It's nice. It's like a campus. (laughs) But the next time she went, it was hardcore. And I used to blame her husband, Floyd, because he's that motorcycle gang guy. But he died at Fort Leavenworth from the first bust. He wouldn't apologize. You know, he was a Green Beret. Then she met her second husband right away, and he died in prison. So I'm like, oh, no, she's the braves of this thing. But she's out now. She lives in Ohio. She drives a forklift, knock on wood, living a, a good well, life. I mean,
0: we could go down a whole rabbit hole and do an hour on on drugs in America, yeah. which I don't really want to do here. But mm-hmm. I think that it's relevant to this podcast that I wanted to pick your brain on is like, you really are of these people, right? I mean, there's a lot of folks in Hollywood that come out and speak out against MAGA stuff, and they get on their fucking high horse, and it's like nobody cares what you think. You know what I mean? Nobody wants, you know, you're a little meme yeah. about this, right? Right. You don't know these people. Yeah. You understand MAGA world. I pulled it up what you're talking. In Wapolo County, which used to be a Democratic working— I and mean, these are the classic Obama-Trump voters that everybody talks about, classic white working class voters, and it went 61— 37 for Trump over Biden. You know, a total landslide. In a different county in Iowa, ugh, I'm blanking on what it was. In northwest Iowa, maybe it's Calhoun County, one of those was the biggest switch in the country from Obama to Trump, right? Wow. Same type of world. Wow. You must have some empathy for that. And you're just, you're, you're such an outspoken anti-Trump person, but I'm just curious about your view on like why that has happened. I mean, was it all the factory jobs went away? Was it a black guy became president and the racism kicked in? Was
1: it, you know, something else? Yeah. Well, the racism definitely <laughs> kicked in. And then the next guy told him, I'm like you. Basically, and this happens every generation in America, where some guy will come in and tell all the, working class white people. I got you. And I'm successful. I'm going to take you up here because the worst white person is better than the best black person. That's what they believe. And I'm going to erase that black guy from history. But I'm with you. I hear you. I feel you. And it's disappointing when I saw it happening. I saw Trump 2015 or 16 at the state fair, fly people on his helicopter. And I will say this. I've had this too where especially in my town and some way, the rich guys, you just knew they were better than you because they're rich guys. So you just kind of like, yeah, that person, I can't believe they spoke to me because they're a rich person. I get that. I mean, I think that goes through everybody, but this generation, a bunch of my brothers were into it and still are a couple into Trump because they thought it was funny or they thought he was plain spoken or not that it's a thing. But I would tell them, i would known him 40 years. He is exactly the same as he's always been. And by the way, today, he's exactly as he's always been. He's authentically terrible. That's who he is, though. These other guys that are enabling him, they're the worst. And I think you see Ron DeSantis and people go, he's not authentic. I'm not voting for him. I'll vote for the authentically <laughs> yeah. terrible guy that lies to me. So that's what happened. It was a huge shift, the racism, because that is always there, man. I'm Jewish, and there's four Jewish families today town and the one dad would always say to us not enough to hate <laughs> so don't yeah. don't spread it around
0: i'm sorry that four families that there weren't enough families to hate or you weren't quite dark skinned enough to hate yeah oh,
1: not it. enough jews no, not, enough ju- not enough jews to hate but you know at the meat plant when ormel fired everybody they hired all immigrants they bust them up from the border to take these jobs yeah. at half price and that was a problem too I think for a lot of people. Now I have to say this, there's a lot of white people that won't do those jobs. They're too hard. And I include my brothers in that. They are super hard jobs. So there's that, but it was to convince people that we're being overrun or these people or whatever, kind of was laid out there for them. It's a little bit different now. People have integrated, you'll hear nonsense once in a while, but people have integrated, they have better food, in these little towns now, because they have yeah. genuine Mexican food and people have integrated, but they're still there. It's bubbling.
0: I just I just ate at La Juanita in Sioux City just last week, and it's pretty darn good Mexican food. Yeah, shout out Sioux City.
1: Yeah, that's up by their Devin, uh, what's his name? Devin, the guy that used to. Devin Nunez. Yeah. Oh my God, that guy. He's got a, a dairy farm with his brother up there. Yeah. Anyway, the,
0: it was Sebastian Kim. So it's Howard County, actually, in northeastern Iowa, that had the biggest switch. But the thing that still flummoxes me. Right. And I think you're hitting on it a little bit. It's this is like cares about us thing. So back in when you're growing up, the Democrats and the union guys, they had this, oh, care about us, working man kind of thing. And, and maybe the Democrats are losing that brand a little bit. And Trump has taken it, even though he's full of shit, like he at least they think that he cares about yeah. them. But it, it's flummoxing to like think about the fact that like, here we are having seen all that now. And that part of the world iowa your old home it's going to have the first opportunity for the republicans to go a different direction and like right now trump's winning in a landslide and it's those parts of the state where he's going to do the best the old factory parts of the state yeah like i don't know when you go back there you got to just be like (laughs) do you have any
1: insight from your conversations when you go home on why that is it is a little better like i never back down from I mean, I had a fist fight with Mark Burnett about Trump. So I, and to say back there, there'd be guys like, hey, you got a big mouth. I go, I'm helping you. But I've never backed down from who I am. Now, I have seen people come around. Because coming into 2016, the 2015 Iowa caucus, which people don't remember he lost. And that should have been the end of his campaign, by the way. When he badmouthed John McCain. Because these phonies, they're always like, we're so pro-military. And I'm talking about the voters. Yeah. That should have been it. It should have been the birther thing, by the way, in 2011. And I want to say this. If the first Jewish president, if Donald Trump had said, I need to see your birth certificate, he would have never been <laughs> even on television again because we would have all okay. stuck together. You're playing
0: into Kanye's tropes a little bit there about your control of the media. But anyway, continue.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think we would stand up for, you know, it'd be such a big thing. It hasn't happened, obviously. But. It seems like it's getting a little bit better. But during my travels, when I'm, Arnold had me and Kevin McCarthy host a thing for him because he thought it was hilarious, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger, that we're such different sides and stuff. And Kevin McCarthy, the person he says, why do you hate Trump? I go, why don't you fucking hate Trump? That's the real question. Yeah, I go, you care for the country or Trump? This yeah. is like 2020. He's like, well, the country, of course. And something that Gavin or governor here in California, said it about four years ago on Axios. He did an interview. He said, Trump is going to go off a cliff, and all the Republican Party is going to follow him off that cliff. Now, that's what I assume is happening, but man, it's taking so long, it's scary, and we can't take anything for granted. I mean, again, like Chuck Grassley. My dad was that kind of Republican. He voted for Chuck Grassley 50 years ago, whatever. And Chuck Grassley used to be a legitimate right legislator, and in Iowa, in high school, we separated us between Democrats and Republicans, and then we went up to the state house and passed bills. Literally sat in the Iowa state house and learned how to negotiate and yeah. compromise. It was fun, and th- that's what we learned. And you just can't do that
0: no. now. There would be some risks of some cafeteria violence if you were separating people by party now in high school. You mentioned Arnold. Yeah, I want to get into kind of some of your Trump era. You like a Forrest Gump of the Trump era a little bit. You just kind of show up at random things. I do want to get into some of that. But I was just thinking about this this morning. It's like I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what the right year to ask this about, like 1991 or two, when you're doing Roseanne and you're doing True Lies with Arnold, <laughs> like that era. I, you you have to look back on that. Like, would you would it ever have occurred to you that? Arnold would be a governor, and Roseanne would be an outspoken MAGA conservative, and you would be like, did you guys all talk about politics back then? How did this happen?
1: Well, Roseanne and I met in 1983 when I was 23, basically just out of the meatpacking plant. And she's older than me, but we met doing a comedy show in the Midwest, and she was very, very funny. And I never heard somebody say they were a feminist. I had never heard the term people of color. You know, I came from a beat packing plant and I was like fascinated by her and she was so liberal. And I said, I like that. I want what you got. I will learn from you. Now, obviously, (laughs) things have changed a lot. But in the early 90s, we both supported Tom Harkin for president. He's a buddy of mine. He's one of the best ever. And then we supported Bill Clinton. And I got pictures of us, her and Hillary and me and Bill. We hosted them and I hosted the Iowa The Lincoln dinner, what is it, the big-
0: Yeah, the Democratic one would be the Jefferson-Jackson dinner.
1: Jefferson-Jackson, yeah. yeah. I mean, we were all in on that. And then you get divorced, and people say, well, now, with Arnold, I have to say, nothing is surprising. So I knew he was a Republican. I knew Maria was a Democrat, but I also knew he really respected her family. He respected the legacy of what they had done but he also was great friends with George H.W. Bush. He was his physical fitness guy. I don't know if you remember that. And I used to say, Trump is so bad that I'm his physical fitness guy. But you could see he had things going on in his head and he had accomplished everything he'd ever wanted to and still is. But Roseanne, it was shocking. We got divorced and people are like, are you guys still friends? If we can be friends, we would still be married. But all of a sudden, i get ready to, my Trump show on Vice, and the Roseanne show is coming back. It's all at the same time. And someone said, have you seen her social media? I go, no, I haven't. You should check it out. And it was shocking. She had said the Boston bomber was a false flag thing. She'd written a letter to every member of Congress, say that John McCain was a traitor.
0: I got a couple of highlights for you. We've got in March, the comedian falsely accused a Parkland, Florida school shooting survivor of performing a Nazi salute. Valerie Jarrett, the Muslim Brotherhood at Planet of the Apes, had a baby. She thinks President Trump has freed so many children held in bondage to pimps all over the world, hundreds each month. This is a QAnon, Pizzagate thing. She had retweeted Infowars reports on 5.7 million illegals. Who voted in the election shared a YouTube video titled "Confirmed Scalise at the same hospital that took out Seth Rich, as well as various other Seth Rich bulletins." This was the theory that DNC staffer who got killed was actually behind the
1: the Russia uh, collusion. I I mean, it's a madness, and then she's given this great opportunity on this new show and that stuff. I mean, it's so over the top. But I I also knew that. The first show did great, and Trump loved it, and Mark Burnett loved it, people are bragging. She's your girl. But it was getting ready to come back for the second season. And the second season, she promised the network, we're not going to be so political, but she promised the Trump people it's going to be all Trump all the time. So she had that dichotomy. And the weekend before the writers came back, and I was communicating with her daughter who was so worried and tried to give her help, like, take away her her freaking fault. Man, if I was married to her, she would not have her phone. (laughs) She would not have Wi-Fi. I found a phone on the internet that you'd send anything you write into another server, not the big server, <laughs> that someone else could figure it out before you tweet it. But she sabotaged it. She sabotaged it with the Valerie Jarrett meme. And it's the worst thing. you know. Black kids have to deal yeah. with that by a-holes. And for her to do that, knowing this is the most... And I think if she hadn't been busted on that, she would have done more. Man. And her pedophile stuff about the Bidens and Hillary Clinton is very disappointing because she is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And she knew that I, in adulthood, had tracked down the pedophile that raped me and the other boys in our neighborhood. It was a big deal. And I tracked him down and confronted him and made sure he couldn't adopt kids anymore. And, and Terry Bradstead was the governor at the time, and wow, he yeah. helped me. He was a Republican, but this is when you do the right things. So she knew that was a big part, and she'd certainly spoken up about stuff. And it's a serious issue. It's a serious issue. It's like domestic abuse. You don't mess with it. But then she's all in. And she cannot say a comedian to be good. They've got to say, oh, look at this. Joe Biden's old. I hate it when he rides a bike. By the way, I do hate it when he rides a bike. It makes me so freaking nervous. But you make fun of this guy. You do this. But she could not say one negative thing about Trump, a guy she used to hate, but we worked with Trump. She hated him. He found a way to weasel himself into her HBO special, and then he didn't pay the bill. They shot it at the Trump Casino yeah. Tower Castle or whatever out there, and then she hated who he was. And by the way, he hated her. Melania and him, and me and my wife went to the Elton John AIDS
0: Okay, Oscars Yeah, I've seen the picture of you sitting We sat together.
1: Yeah, and he looked over at me and goes, boy, she's cute. I go, oh, thank you. So much better than that pig Shocking. you used to be married to. It took my brother away. And first of all, you don't want to hear anything bad about your, I mean, you can say stuff about your old relationship, but it was weird. It was weird. But it was fine because then he was just Donald Trump, the guy. And he'd come on my sports show. He does have this ability to make you yeah. feel sorry for him. It's
0: the Rodney Dangerfield He thing. does,
1: and that's what these people do. And he also has the ability to go, yeah, but he'll go. I just want to say before we start shooting the show, I'm only here because of Tom Arnold. And that gives you tingles. You're like, wow, that's a good feeling. So one night he said, let's go to the Playboy Mansion after the show. I want you to meet my new girlfriend. And I was like, well, he did the show. He came out here. I'll go over there. I don't know if it was a vodka or a (laughs) tequila, his brand or something. And I went over there with him and rode with his bodyguard, Schiller. What year are we in right now? What year is this? It's in the 2000s. My sports show was 2001 to 2005, so it's right in there, 2005 probably. And we go there, and he says, this is my girlfriend. It's Karen McDougall, very pretty, dressed in a bunny outfit and everything. And I was like, very nice to meet you and stuff. And then he's like, oh, there's Melania and my daughter. And they all posted a picture together." And I remember watching that because I work with athletes at the Best Dance Sports Show, period. Athletes, well, they live some interesting lives. But I was like, that guy has brass balls. That guy is doing that right here with everybody in public. He does not care, and that's the thing. He does not care. And I guess
0: the evangelicals didn't care either. There was anything so interesting. Sorry, I want to give back, to Trump, but like, you have my like brain swirling over here. Given her victimization, I just. Do you think there is something to that that just like you eventually you just kind of lose the thread? It's much easier for me to understand why somebody who has not been successful, who has resentment, Uh about society might look at Trump and be like he can bring my people back like I have some empathy for people who like lost it all in the financial crisis and were underwater in their mortgage and are fucked and like now see a black guy's president it's not okay but I just I get it yeah Roseanne has all this success but then she does has this trauma in her life you know kind of you you know what I mean like you must be mystified by that
1: or do you have any insight I am some people don't remember But at one time, Roseanne had the number one television show, the number one movie with Meryl Streep, the number one book. Did she ever
0: express any, like, aliens, conspiracies to you or anything? Was there any hint of that there? Did she like to read the National Enquirer?
1: (laughs) Well, we were in the National Enquirer a lot. I I, I remember. She was involved with witchcraft. Okay. And uh, she considered herself a white witch, which I didn't take. You know, I'm very skeptical of all that. I know that after we broke up, she had a doll made of me and said they do a thing where they stab it the and it's supposed to cause you great pain. But I do I think well, that was the stroke? Cute.
0: Do you think that's what caused the stroke? It was much before <laughs> okay. that.
1: It was much before that. But she did a little bit believe in some mediums and different things, which a lot of people believe it. But she was also very rich. She made $200 million on the Roseanne show, the first run. And it's not like she blew it all. She did that, but she did a talk show, did this, this. And all comedians, all people, you get in your career as you get older, and comedians will work till the day they die. And you don't always have the, it's not always white hot, your career. Nobody's is. And then they accept it and just say, well, I love doing this. I'm going to continue. Or they try to figure out a plan B. And I think in her case, because of her ego, and a lot of people, my ex-stepdaughter and other people are like, well, it's her mental illness. She has mental illness, but... It's beyond that because she is specifically doing it. By the way, if my mother was out there doing interviews, which she did a couple, which is great, I would make sure to pull that cord if I felt like, you know, she would tell the inquirer that I was a bad Jew and stuff like that, whatever. But Wait, I think she that, did that, do
0: that or if she did that? Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, she did it. She mm. did it. But uh, Roseanne, I can't explain, but it is something cult-like because she has no beliefs. There's no moral. There's no... This is what I think it's all about. I'm going to say whatever I have today. I'm going to be posed with Carrie Lake. Yeah. But pretend like we're eating Michael Flynn. Yeah. Who is a, you know, these are the guys now. And I just wonder if that's going to take her off a clip. And I just assume one day she'll go, oh my God, I'm sorry. I was having an episode. I'm back now. And I don't believe any of the stuff I've been saying for the last 15 years. To
0: me, it's like, it is the contrarianism and the high level resentment that I just think drives so many of these people. Obviously, I don't know with Roseanne, but like just this notion of maybe you're at a peak and you want that back. Because I watched her thing with Theo Vaughn, Uh and like she's still smart and funny. You know what I mean? Yeah, Clever. I get to, it was not like interviewing an insane person who's like, you know, there are a few Trump people like you watch some of these interviews and you're like, whoa, a couple of you people have just totally had a mental psychotic break. Yeah. And that was not the case. Yeah. It, it almost seemed like it was. I want to needle these fucking people. Right. I want to needle these people who think they know better, who think they're so smart. And if the best way to needle them is to be like, oh, there's a secret pedophile ring out there in a pizza mm-hmm. store and the election was stolen. Then I'll just say that because that's the thing that'll needle them the most. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, I know. I sense that from the Theo Vaughn interview. And she was actually kind of funny. And she said a couple of funny things about our honeymoon that were actually kind of funny. And there's sort of stuff she did back in the day. And I think that the thing about needling people and saying what she What said, did she say
0: about your honeymoon? Oh,
1: she was talking. And this is true. We went to this resort in Mexico and the security came because we were eating too loud. I swear <laughs> they people could hear the forks of the plates. That's all it has to through. I thought, well, that's funny. That's for that. That happened. You know, and I could tell she wanted to be funny too with Theo yeah. because a lot of her videos are just her ranting and raving, and it's her son that films it which is unfortunate, but maybe that's a good thing. But this owning the libs thing, she also is a very intelligent woman, very smart. So she has to know that there's ways to communicate owning the libs. You know, there's the Rob Schneider way or the Jim Brewer way, which are disappointing. I was there when she sang the national anthem, but this is the old rosette. We went down to San Diego, and what happened is people in Hollywood, they would lie to you. They say, oh, you're talented in every area. And God doesn't work that way. If you're a talented actor on a sitcom or writer, God's not going to make you a talented singer. I just know how. we're. I... And so she'd say, they want me to sing national anthem in a baseball game. i go, oh, my gosh, do they? And on the one hand, is her husband. I want to support her. It's also my job to protect her yeah. from her. So she went back and forth. And I knew it wasn't going to win the war, but I wanted to win one battle. I said, not Dodger Stadium. We're going to go to San Diego, and you're going to sing the national anthem. And then if it goes sideways, no one will ever hear about it. <laughs> and that's what – and, you know, she got out there. She's singing. All the buttered out megas <laughs> hated her. And, Why
0: did she spit again? I was a kid. I don't even know really I remember what – Well,
1: because the baseball players spit. Grab their clutch and spit. And people are like – she's not a great singer <laughs> and very brave of her. And George H.W. Bush was watching the game with press mm. people, and he's friends with the owner, and he said, that's a disgrace to America. I mean, he said that out loud. So by the time we got to L.A., everybody had heard the president's had so packed with paparazzi. I ended up in a fight there, defending her. And then, to his credit, Mrs. Bush, who I yeah, love, came forward and said, I think the woman is brave. Like, it was that thing that only they could yeah. do. but. I went on Johnny Carson right after that and just trashed President Bush, George H.W. And I wasn't funny, trashing him. I was just mean. Yeah. And the next morning, I saw Maria Shriver. She said, oh, I saw you on Carson last night talking about the president. I go, oh, yeah. She goes, that, that was pretty rough. I go, oh, well, he doesn't watch Johnny Carson. She goes, I bet he does. I go, oh, boy. Well, he did not care what I think. She goes, I bet he does. At the time, I knew how close Arnold... I go, okay, well, I'll write an apology. And she hands me a pad of paper, and I wrote it right there. Mr. President, I know you're a public figure, but my joke's for me. For that, I apologize. Gave it to her, and 48 hours later, a Secret Service came to my home with a handwritten letter from George Herbert Walker Bush the President of the United States. They said, Tom, of course you can make jokes about me. Do whatever you want. And Jerry Weintraub Loves you. I assume that was the only Jew he knew in Hollywood. <laughs> and he said, Would you join Barbara and I for dinner this weekend? And I'm like, You got to be kidding me. And from that point on, I wouldn't say anything bad about George W. Bush. When all the other liberals are like, Yeah, this and that, the war. I go, No, no. Cheney and Rumsfeld, they're monsters. But that's a solid family that Bush is. And so that, that really happens. So that's how. Shape HW
0: your... is a guy with integrity, I and mean, he still has all those letters. Yeah. I want, he, they showed me every, the Kenny Bunkport, and it's just when when he was live, it's just unbelievable. I wanted to ask you. I'm sure you've seen this. There are people on the internet that'll be like, you know, Tom Arnold. He's out there doing this anti-Trump stuff and the Trump tapes, which I want to ask you about, and all this. It's like it's a grift. He wants attention. It's just the other side of the Roseanne coin. What do you say to that notion? That that was the only rationale for this.
1: Well, I have to say that when you do the anti-Trump stuff, it tends to affect your career in a negative way, especially <laughs> show business, because everybody thinks everybody. Also liberal. true everybody's in Republican ad
0: making business.
1: By the yes, way, I get this course, accusation as well. But anyway, yeah. go ahead. Go
0: ahead. Yeah,
1: but it's worth it because my kids are ten and seven. I'm a single dad with a ten year old and a seven year old, and I genuinely care about their future. And if I have the opportunity to speak up a little bit about anything, about Israel, about this, about that, about Trump, then I have to do it. And whatever I know, whoever I've gotten to know in the Trump world, I've also noticed that a lot of people close to Trump have reached out to me. Michael Cohen, uh, these other people. And and then you say, well, my ultimate goal is to get Trump to retire, to stop being involved with politics, to whatever. And I can't get the people in Hollywood to help me. Mark Burnett will not give me the tapes of the outtakes of The Apprentice. But as he said, Mark Burnett, 2016 at Arnold Schwarzenegger's Christmas party. I mean, we had it out there. I shouldn't have done it at Arnold's party, but Mark Burnett's like- So it's after the election? Yeah. And I asked him before the election, obviously. He's like, buddy, number one, and he showed me a picture of his son as Trump's ring bearer. And number two, Trump wants the tapes and you want the tapes. And I'm not giving it to either one of you. And trust me, he's going to be presidential. And one of his buddies said, Hillary Clinton is more like Hitler than Trump. We almost got into a fight. I thought, I got to get out of here. So I get to my stand at Arnold's house and there had been an accident in the valet. So I had to stand there for a little bit. I'm like, oh my God, because it's all conservatives in there. And all of a sudden, Clint Eastwood comes up behind me. And he's like, Trump is a bonehead. You know the worst part about running for mayor, if you win... Then you gotta be mayor. And I thought, well, that's pretty insightful. But he never even at that point, Arnold's like, he's gonna be presidential. Let's forget all the stuff. This is who it is. And it didn't take Arnold a long time to come around to that either. So yeah, you do what you Arnold can. Arnold
0: is still kind of tough on Biden. Where are, we could use
1: Clinton and Arnold? By yeah. the way,
0: I was just asking that. I, I want people to speak out. I totally reject the grift yeah. accusation. Yeah. Look, it's not as if there aren't some grifters out yeah. there in every group, but like we need more. More is more, right? Like, I, I, you know, is
1: Charlie Sykes a grifter? The great Charlie Sykes, my hero who Trump made swear. Is he a grifter? If it's his background. No, he's a solid gold human being. He's my North Star.
0: So, okay, and out from backstage, I'm gonna bring Charlie. Six- no, I'm sorry, I didn't have that prepared. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well,
1: but yeah, uh, I'll make not, sure he gets the clip. Yeah, I mean, if people want to put you down for doing whatever, whatever they want to bombard you on social media, troll you with the same stuff, this, that, divert your attention, take you away from you. Could say something completely legit and obvious about Donald Trump, and a thousand people will say, What about your career? What about this? What about. And they don't take it in. And even Elon Musk doesn't seem to be taking it in, the big picture. And 81 million people voted for Joe Biden in 2020. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the only two people who could have won that election. And we owe them everything. This morning on the way to school, it took longer because Kamala Harris is home. She lives on the block my kid's school. I don't hold that against her. But... That's why even Democrats are like, "Oh, we got to get Kamal out of there." I go, "That doesn't work. There is no world where that's okay." Well, we want Gavin; he's a good debater and stuff. I go, "That doesn't work." And the thing about Joe Biden, you don't realize what all he's doing because he is older, is takes his time, and all of a sudden you realize, "Oh shit, he's done all of this stuff. He's not bragging about yeah. it all the time. He's not doing this, but he's moral, which is important." Mick Jagger's eighty. Okay, Mick Jagger is 80. Would you elect him president? I don't think I want Mick Jagger to <laughs> know, be president, that was probably. Harrison, how about Harrison Ford? Okay, I'm,
0: I'm happy with Joe Biden. I am, he, he walks a little yeah, gingerly. Yeah. And sometimes I'm just like, oh, I wish that he wouldn't use the whisper voice. And so, like, Project, you're killing, you're doing a great job. But... um anyway so i'm trying to think which of your weird forrest gump areas to start with so like you say the trump people reach out to you like why is that explain to me so on the very first one of these podcasts where we were trying to get people outside of the normal political pundit class yeah. to just chat about this stuff we had billy corbin oh, I love who that. did the jerry yeah. Falwell junior yeah, doc yeah, yeah we were interviewing billy and he's awesome and and uh, let's people should go back and find that interview if you missed that. I saw it, but uh, we're doing the interview and it's just like we're in the middle of it, and he's like, Yeah, and then and then there's this piece of evidence and there's that, and then you know, then we really figured out he was having a threesome with the pool. Well, not really a threesome, he was letting yeah. the pool boy screw his wife because we got the tape from Tom. <laughs> <off>. <laughs> and I'm, like, I'm like, Wait a minute, yeah. I was like, So, how did that happen that you taped Michael Cullen? Yeah, well, here's when he was telling you that they covered it up. Yeah. Uh, like, how did you find yourself in this
1: situation? Number one, people in my business look up to people in your business or athletes or musicians. Sure. We're sort of in the same world, and it goes both ways. You know, there yeah, are people that are fascinated with Hollywood stuff, which shocks me. But well, what happened is Michael Cohen and I met in 2018, in June 22nd, and we met at the uh, Regency where he was staying. I knew he was staying there, and I was f- filming my show, but I was actually wrapped. I was talking to a guy from Rolling Stone who was following me, for the last couple of months. And I, I said, it's too bad I didn't see Michael Cohen because I really wanted, I mean, I went to a lot of people's places and talked to him. And all of a sudden I look over his shoulder and I go, Michael Cohen's coming through the door. And I jump up and I'm thinking, this is going to go well or terrible. And I stood right at the door there. He's coming in to the And he's like, hey, Tom, I knew immediately it's going to be good. Now, he saw me as someone that he needed too. It went both ways. So I, the guy took a picture. I tweeted it. It became a huge. And what,
0: I'm sorry, why did he think he needed you? Well, I, I just, I don't, I still am not following. He was
1: that. aware of what I was doing about Trump. You know, that oh, was I, the, we're yeah. looking for the truth. he actually hired, yeah. when he was still with Trump, Trump had to hire a lawyer for a guy that I was criticizing from the apprentice that was Trump's body man that I knew had been to Russia with him and came back and told us all this crazy stuff. And now he's all shut up. But I put names out there. him and Stormy Daniels and Cameron Deal, stuff that hadn't been out there yet, and said Michael Cohen had hired a lawyer for that guy, Keith Davidson, who ended up being a lawyer for Stormy Daniels at first and all these other people, paid by Trump to represent the other person. So we were were adversaries at first. Anyway, by that time, he was considering flipping when I saw him. And I was like, you got to flip and post that picture. And then he's in a hotel. We started hanging out. He goes, let me tell you what I feel. I want to do this and that. He wasn't 100%. And I said, well, let me take care. I'm going to go on a Nicole Wallace show live. And I'll get you squared away. I'll defend you. So I go on there. It's a crazy interview. So I've got all the text back and forth because he's sitting at the hotel watching it. It was very fun, though. I love her so much. And he goes, oh, my God, that's terrible. I go, hey, don't worry. I'm going to fix everything. I'm going on CNN in eight minutes. And <laughs> that interview went way off the rails. And
0: this was what you're talking about the Jerry Fong? No, this is, me, all, this or... is
1: just getting Michael Cohen to flip. And I okay. said a quote on Nicole that Michael said, what does he say? And I gave a quote. He says he's going to take care of his family and the country. And he's done with Donald Trump. And he was okay. very bad I said that. But a week later, he tweeted that himself. That's the same thing. So I said, it's not just Trump, it's the people around him. So this Jerry Falwell thing was suspicious. Jerry Falwell Jr. and his wife, and I'd heard rumblings about a, quote, unquote, pool boy in Florida. And a couple guys had written things about it, but they didn't have all the, and I said, I got to find that guy. And so I, I did call Billy Corbin. I said, hey, I found, and I did find Giancarlo Granda. And I said, I think there's other pool boys. I said, this guy is Mexican, and they're anti immigrant. And, you know, I, I, it's maybe not a gay act, but it's something out of the norm for an evangelical. And Billy was great about trying to find... Yeah, murder. I mean, by um, the way,
0: if you want to hire a pool boy to sleep with your wife, that's like all cool with yeah. me. I don't have any, any hang-ups about all yeah. that, but it definitely is not within the bylaws of Liberty University. Well, it's, I'm pretty well familiar with the rules there, yeah, and it definitely yeah. seems
1: right, <laughs> but it's also, against the rules. You know, that power thing, where when he Started it, they came and they said, We'll make your dreams come true. You want to be a billionaire? You got to believe big. That's sort of how they came right. into it. I mean, it was a sexual thing for sure. But then when his parents found out, John Carl, they're like, they thought of Jerry Falwell Jr. like Jesus. Oh, you're hanging out right. with Jesus and Mary. So that became a thing. And then when he's tried to get out of it, they would not let him. In fact, Jerry threatened to show John Carl's girlfriend a video uh, Becky Falwell and him having sex, like that's how brazen Jerry Falwell was blackmailing him, which is crazy. Yeah. So yeah, I figure out we got to get all the information. Michael Cohen called me on that call, and we tape recorded each other on every call. You
0: well, know, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's a healthy relationship with a yeah, new friendship yeah, start. so yeah. you feel like you have to record each yeah. other on every conversation.
1: But it's good to get the fact. He does it yeah. just to get the facts. I said that's why I'll do it too. And part of that call was him saying, I did not commit those crimes, slowly but surely going through the crimes that he'd been found guilty of, because he couldn't publicly say he'd been found guilty of those crimes. But if Tom Arnold serendipitously taped him saying that and posted it, well, that's not his fault. And that was part of it. But then he goes, said the phone, well, you're all wrong about that, the gay stuff or whatever. And I go, oh, I'm sorry. He goes, yeah, they had a thing. And there were some pictures. I went down a broker to deal with a <laughs> bullboy. and the pictures and the pictures were not good. And he kept talking. he said, "You know, if you're a grandmother, Becky, she's got a nice body, but not you don't want that out there?" And I go, "Oh okay, that's bad. I'll quit talking about it." There's a pause. he goes, "I've still got one of the pictures." <laughs> after he did that thing. So I flew to New York and I'm like, "I got." And he did. And, but he had pictures of other people, friends of Trumps who's Trump would do all these things and say, I'll help you out. But then he keep all these naked pictures of everybody. And so that's what happened. He had lied to me, but he lied because he was very close to Becky and Jerry Falwell. And so I thought, until the day he goes into prison, which I think was May 6th, 2019, I'm not going to talk about it. But the day he went to prison, the next day, I released all this tape stuff to some real journalists. And that's when it blew up. And then I found out he he was very upset on the tape because the Falwells had not called him since he was arrested, had not done this. And he'd been to their kids' christenings, I guess it's called, and he bought them a shell purse for their baby or something. He was very hurt. His feelings were hurt. So when he got into prison, then I found out the Falwells met with him the weekend before he got in prison and squared things away. And I assume they paid him. So. Michael and I, we stuck together the whole time he's in prison because he had phones and we kept getting him other phones to communicate with me. And I'd share it with Swalwell and, and Swalwell, give him a courage message. I do all this. But when he got out, you know, we were kind of back to our normal stuff. And then he saw that I was going to go all the way through with the Falwell stuff. Yeah. And I said, I need you to do me a favor. You know, you were the fixer for the Falwells with the first pool boy. I need you to be the fixer for Giancarlo Granda, this pool boy, with the fall, the reverse. Because you've come full circle, Michael. And he said, Yeah. yeah, our paths are different. We're on different journeys. And that was it, basically. The great
0: evangelical heroes, Cuckoldery, the Playboy Mansion with wife and girlfriend. It's been an interesting journey. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to end with a couple of fun things, but I'm curious. You So you mentioned that you have a platform, you're Jewish, you might want to speak out about Israel. I don't have any idea what your view is on what's... Obviously, I'm sure you're unhappy about the terrorist attack. Yeah. Where do you kind of fall on what the U.S. can be doing, what we should be doing, you know, some of the stuff on the left flank that has been a little less, crazy, yeah, let's say, of Israel?
1: Well, there's a lot of stupid people. They're, they're stupid people on the far left, but they're only about 5 or 10%. The problem with the stupid people yeah. on the far right is there's like 45% of them. So yeah. That's, yeah, it's maybe more it's 55%, yeah. The same. Yeah, there's a lot of it in L.A. here because they have a large Arab community, very large Jewish community, you yeah. know, and I fell in at school today a little bit, and you get a lot of young people that are stupid. They don't get what's going on. They go do their protests at UCLA or whatever, and— you know, they, they think they're on board for the Palestinian people. Israel has to. Joe Biden is exactly right. We got to have their back. This is awful. My grandpa helped liberate Dachau. I know where this could go. I know that the generational trauma that this has brought up, and it's horrible. It's disgusting. And Bibi, I'm not a fan of that guy at all. Who is? And a lot of us are. A lot of us are. I mean, he's got to claim somebody. He never will some responsibility, and there's so many great people in Israel. A lot of the people that got killed were people that worked with Palestinian families, that reached out, the aid, doctors, whatever. Hamas is just awful. They need to be eradicated, and unfortunately, to do that, there is going to be collateral damage, as they say. Our job as America, is we need to support Israel but we needed to go, hey, heads up, easy does it, you know, do your thing, but be aware. I think that's why they didn't go in the first day because they're trying to get these folks out of there. It's terribly sad for all the children. The, everybody surely can agree that this is having a terrible effect on all the children there. And we got to also make sure, as best our ability, doesn't escalate. But if it does, then we got to do our thing. But it it's terribly sad that, the Palestinian people there, because of Hamas, have been living in terrible conditions. And Hamas had a great opportunity to lift its people up. But they're bullies, So they bully their own people. They do this and that. But they have to be eradicated, The Hamas. I'm for a two-state solution. we got to sure. figure this out 100%. Most of the people of Israel agree. I mean, this was not helpful. But this gave weirdos on the left and on the right the opportunity to go, hey, let's, you know, we got it. And, and it's always funny to me that the right wing evangelicals say they're pro-Israel. And then they say, well, we need Jews because of the rapture. Do you know how the rapture ends? It ends with <laughs> Jews being incinerated. I am anti-rapture. I don't want any part of that.
0: <laughs> no rapture yeah. for you. Okay. I do also think that the evangelicals, some of them might have maybe like a whitewashed view of the Israeli Jews. Yeah. Rather that's than cool. understanding what is, you know, yeah. that they're actually, you know, there's a lot more Arab there than well, the yeah. Israeli Jews. Than...
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty close. It's pretty close. and you. You know. Yeah, it's
0: pretty close. My mother's Lebanese, and I'm like, you know, we're just right across oh, yeah, the yeah. border there.
1: Right, exactly. It's right it's there. So
0: okay, let's do some quick rapid fire. You have been divorced four times. You have a podcast, Divorce Party. So if we right. have listeners who are recently divorced or contemplating divorce. What are your top two pieces of advice around divorce? Well,
1: don't be ashamed. It happens to a lot of people, and you will move beyond it. There are certain things you got to do to move beyond it and then begin the rest of your life. We have people, financial advisors. We have lawyers. We have therapists who come on and talk about all the stuff. We have my friends who have been divorced. And Monica Casey is my co-host. You have her fancy friends. But people, honestly, I'm shocked how honest people are about their divorces. I've certainly learned a lot of things about mine because my last one was with kids and that's super complicated. So it's good. People come on. They have a good time. The idea is you get divorced a lot of people stay in that gray area. But what Monica did is have a divorce party. Her friends took her out. They said karaoke. She got drunk. She vomited. She made it out with a guy. She did it all. And then she's ready to move on to the next chapter of her life. But we, we like Vomit
0: to... then make out or make that's out what, then vomit? That's
1: always my question. Which happened mm. first? And I'm a guy, so I know it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> but it's about you can move on and you know people to talk to about what you're going through because you are not terminally unique. None of us are. And share our stories, our strength, our hope.
0: I love that. Everybody gets this one. Is there something that as an adult you've changed your mind on? You've had a lot of experiences. Yeah. Many marriages. What's something that you've changed your view on with some wisdom?
1: You do a lot of things different when you're a parent. You know, the adult at 18 did not, you know, I lived, did all kinds of crazy stuff and drugs and alcohol and all kinds of dangerous stuff. I think when you really become an adult and you've got to, These little people around you, it changes. I mean, it's the small things. When I drove to school today, we have a long drive from Sherman Oaks to Brentwood. And I have breakfast in the car for the kids. We try to Why do you do that to yourself? Well, because I like the school and I can't afford to live next to it right now. But I generally like it. That's what we're doing now. It's only another year if I sign it. It just seems to work. They've worked so hard. And you know, these teachers are amazing. And I volunteer, you can't complain unless you're volunteering. And they've done an amazing job. So, you know, we do our best with it. It's not gonna last forever, but we will. So my kid's like, daddy, you're a good driver for an old person. I was like, wow, that's uh, that's good. And I realized I'm very cautious. I will move around, but I look, I take nothing for granted. I do this, i turning signal always. I hate people that don't use their turning signal. But I think when you're 64 like me, you're sort of in that sweet spot. People in my family, when they turn 80, they're maniacs because they're stubborn and they don't want to give up their license. Like my grandma was legally blind and she wouldn't stop driving. Nobody can stop her. We live in a small town. So I think there are things like that, the way I don't think of myself first. i mm-hmm. I'm way more patient. If I ever, I haven't had a date in six and a half years, but what I've learned from being with my kids is you have to do things that don't seem fun, that seems stupid. And then you got to figure out in your head a way to make them fun. And that's what I do with a lot of the stuff we come up here with the kids. I'm like, this seems awful. Can I lay down while we do it? No. Okay. But you try to make things fun. And so I have many lessons to learn. Teeth, skin, take care of that.
0: We're sheet skinned. That is true. That's good advice from the gays, too. Yeah. Men out there, moisturize. Longtime listeners of this podcast will know that I'm not a big turn signal person, so I apologize. So we may have found our one area yeah. of disagreement. Yeah. This is supposed to be rapid fire, but I, I need to have a follow up now. Don't you got Roseanne residuals enough I you do know, have, to get in on Charmin's? You know what?
1: This, I swear to God, because every divorce is public record in California. You could look it up. Yeah. I would not accept Alibody. I would not accept. I could add $50 million easily. Out
0: of stubbornness yeah. or i no,
1: I've got the stupids coming out, this movie and stuff, and I regret it, I'm going to tell you, because yeah, my next okay. three wives took it. But you get residuals from the episodes I've written. I wrote a bunch of episodes and little acting stuff, and, and it's not terrible. I will take Social Security next March 6th, though, because that's pretty good.
0: <laughs> the big influence that Roseanne had on my life is, I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember you had – I think a single episode, or maybe a two-episode run with young Leo DiCaprio. Oh yeah,
1: he was at our wedding.
0: He was in your wedding. He was at our wedding. This was my gay awakening. Oh my god, this was my gay awakening yeah. in middle school. I was like, all of a sudden, Leo. I was, you know, I had confused feelings. I'm watching Rosanna, and I was like, I kind of like Darlene. She's pretty. Yeah. And then Leo comes on, and I was like, ooh, actually, yeah, yeah. was the new cast member. He was so anyway. He was
1: Sarah Gilbert's date to and I's wedding. Yes, uh, that's right. I didn't even realize that my kids saw it. And they go. Was Leo DiCaprio at your wedding? I go, I don't know which one. (laughs) So anyway, yeah. Thank you for saying that.
0: Okay, we're going to end here. I want a story time. I want you to close with one story. I'm giving you two people you can choose. We've already done a little bit of Arnold, but I'm always open for other Arnold stories. Or you once said that you were good friends with Michael Jackson, so (laughs) I'll also take a Michael Jackson story. So Michael or Arnold, dealer's choice. You know, anything you want to share. I wasn't
1: good friends with Michael Jackson, but I had dinner with him a bunch. Marva Davis who owned Fox and the Berrios Hotel, this big oil guy from, I think they based the dynasty on his family. He would host these it, big okay. dinners and it'd be all these great, Cindy Pontier, Michael Jackson, all the Frank Sinatra, all these great. Oh my God. I'll, I'll tell you a uh, Frank Sinatra story, if you don't mind. Please.
0: Okay, great.
1: Dealer's choice. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Many years ago, Rosanna and I gave speeches about child abuse at the Barbara Sinatra Center down in Palm Springs. And she had this wonderful organization. They took kids in. They gave a safe place for them, whatever. We shared our stories. And Frank Sinatra was there. This is at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And Frank Sinatra was sitting right next to me right here with a scotch or whatever in his hand and drinking it. And then as I tell the story about the pedophile from my hometown and what he did, I could hear Frank saying, well, that son of a bitch. So, like, he, he, you can hear it. This is like a, you know, and I thought, well, that's nice of him. <laughs> and he was like so bad about it. He invited us over to his house afterwards. And this is a day, his house in Paul's there, where uh, he said, let's go up to the bar. Now, women couldn't sit at the bar at Frank Saugert's house in those days. You know, that's how he was. I mean, he was just great. And so we're sitting at the bar and he goes, what can I make you? He's the bartender. What, do you, what, what are you drinking? I go, I'm not going to drink. I, I just got out of rehab. I thought, he's not going to understand that. Okay, I'm not going to go through that whole story. And so I go, yeah, I'm not drinking. He goes, why? I go, you know, my old lady, she will let me. He goes, let me tell you something. No broad can stop me from drinking. And I said, I guess you've never been with a really big one. And he just started laughing. I love the guy. And then Roseanne told that story too. So, But it's true.
0: <laughs> so it's allowed now. Yeah. Because you did have some rules, I think, yeah. on the divorce. Yeah. You know, about things oh, yeah. you couldn't talk well, about. Well, I had to do but her that's roast. That's allowed.
1: Out of, out of the blue, she called was calling me to do a roast. We hadn't spoken in many years, 18 years. And I said, the roast producer called, I go, don't ask me to do the roast last minute. You know, I knew there was going to be a roast. Don't ask me because I'd have to prepare. And then, of course, last minute, they couldn't get other people. So Comedy Central said, you have to get Tom Arnold. So, She left message at my house. I called the producer back. I said, what is she going to ask me? Well, she wants you to dress like a waiter and serve her a drink during the roast. And I go, and not roast her? No, it'll be hilarious. I go, see, I'm glad I called you because I would have told her how unfunny that was. And she'd have been like, fucking, fucking, and it never would have happened. Then the next day, she wants you to come and roast the other people in the dais, but not her. I go, well, people will hate that. So that's not happening. The next day is the day before. Anything you want. So now I'm like, shit, I got to get 18 jokes. And so I called my lawyer. I said, I'm doing this thing and they pay good money. He goes, You can't be in the same room together. If she makes fun of your penis, she has to pay you $100,000. If you make fun of her <laughs> vagina, it's under. They went all night, all lawyers in New York, tried to undo this agreement that we had that we can't be in the same room. And then finally on Saturday afternoon, right before, they go, Okay, you can do it. And I, I don't have any jokes, but I had had jokes. 18 years I hadn't seen her. It seemed like once a year, there was a joke in my head. So I went down there and it went very well. And nobody believed I was going to be there. I, I didn't know. They had me hit it. So Jay Lynch says, and now Tom Arnold will say some words. By the way, people have been making fun of me during that roast a lot. And then people laughed. Oh, that's not happening. I came out and I could feel people gasp. And the other comedians, Anthony Jeselnik, all these, you know, everybody was surprised. And I just start doing the jokes and Whatever. I, then I say something to be graceful, like they used to do at the Dean Martin rose, you know. And then I turned to her. I hadn't seen the screen. I assume she's over here, but I hadn't seen how other people do when they're done. Do they shake her hand or do they whatever? And so it's really awkward. Hey, hey. hey. And then I get back stage <laughs> and, I, and I say, get my mic off. I'm getting out of here because the went well. And she comes back and says, I just want you to know how much I appreciate that. And it's good to bury the hatchet. And then the photographer's like, let's take a picture. And she goes, no, I got to go to the restroom. She went to the restroom, and I was like, screw that. I'm taking off. And I called my wife at the time. She goes, did you take a picture with her? I go, no. No, she didn't want to. She went to the restroom. She could have taken her right there. She goes, you're an idiot. Your ex-wife is not going to take a picture with you until she looks at herself in the mirror. It went well. And then I hope that's the end of it. So that's the story.
0: Well, that is wonderful. And Jane Lynch is a big friend of the Bulwark. And so I'm happy that she was there. I got to go. You've given me some homework. I want to watch your Johnny Carson HW takedown. (laughs) I want to watch Jane Lynch at Roseanne Barr. And I want to watch your Nicole Wallace interview. So we will go do that. I'm glad you did not break any of your divorce rules with Roseanne vagina jokes on this podcast. I don't think that's what our audience is looking for. And man, I'm just, I appreciate your activism and continuing to speak out and doing this. And Holler at me anytime, as long as you're not taping me. Well, I, I, you, you're against my knowledge.
1: I'm a huge fan of yours. I read your book. I'm sad you cut your hair. Thank you. I'm very sad about that, but I'm a huge fan of yours.
0: Thank you. I've got some news for you. Men and ladies between the age of like fifty and eighty all liked the long hair and let me know that and would compliment me. But then as soon as I cut my hair, I would occasionally start to receive DMs from men in their 20s. Yeah, yeah, that's and I was true, like, the people have yeah. spoken. The yeah, people yeah. have spoken. I'm sorry. I yeah. just yeah. need to respond to yeah. the market demands. <laughs> yeah. Okay? So Thank anyway. You. Thank you. Um, I'm very grateful for that, though. Thank you Thank so you much. much. Thank we'll you very much. We'll be talking again, and All we'll right. see you next time on Wednesday for the next level. Peace. Bye, buddy.